MaxScholarsPublishing.com That uh, we should get our own. Once we have our own, uh, we're respected for the fact that we can create our own. And uh, that's equality right there. Start a record label, Miss Fish just did it. Nylon, cover five minutes. Whoa, we are too hot in the business. About to make a movie independent. So, uh, Mr. Anderson, welcome to the show, uh, the Black Scholars Podcast. Uh, If you would like to introduce yourself uh, to listeners, let them know a little bit uh, about who you are, um, where you're currently working, what you've been doing um, the past 10 years. Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, uh, good morning again, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. I am Johnny Anderson. I, uh, <clears throat> I've, been, I've been in education off and on uh, for, for 10 years, and I think that I, I think the kind of the most, the most interesting thing, because uh, this is a lot of folk stories, I didn't really want to do this like this wasn't this wasn't my life's plan this wasn't a thing that I, I really wanted to get into um, but I come from a family of educators and so um, I started in Georgia uh, where I went to school I graduated from Morehouse College um, eons ago in 2002 uh, and after graduating I I'd ended up doing an internship the previous summer and uh, it at a newspaper that was actually here where, where I, where I'm from in California in Southern California. And I was bored to tears. And so I went into my senior year of college looking around. Like, I don't, I don't know what I want to do now because I don't want to do the journalism thing that I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. Uh, and so I ended up you know, graduating, stumbling into uh, going into an after school program in downtown Atlanta uh, and working there. The elementary age was kindergarten through, it was a downtown YMCA, it was kindergarten through fifth grade. And I happened to fall in love with it, uh, unexpected and unbeknownst to me. And so I stayed there uh, in Georgia for the, the, following, the following few years. And I ended up having to move back home to California uh, f- uh, for, for family reasons. My mother had, had gotten ill. And so I came back. Uh, and I stepped away from education for for a few years um, and ended up going into construction, construction safety. And almost every day I was on the computer, education news, on my phone, education news, and trying to find out what's going on in education and all these different things. And so I just, uh, I can't get away. I can't, I can't get away from it. Uh, and so I I ended up going back in, and, and now I am at a, uh, a charter school, uh, still here in Southern California as an assistant principal, and ended up getting my master's at the University of Laverne while while going to school, uh, or while working rather at the at the school uh, in Pomona. And so that's the that's the abridged version of of how everything kind of came to pass. Wow, so much to dissect there, and I'm laughing to myself <laughs> as I'm listening to you. Um, because there's so many parallels. I don't think I've actually ever revealed on this podcast, but I did step away from education uh, for two years. I stepped away from education. Oh. And so it's funny, you said you went to construction. I actually went and started my own uh, carpet cleaning company. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, because I was, I was, I was, uh, my first school that I worked at. Uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I started out in special education and the change between my first year of teaching to my second year of teaching can be contributed to uh, changing of the guard. The principal was there, but he changed out uh, pretty much all of the assistant principals and it was a horrible 
experience as a teacher. Um, and so that's why I initially left. So hearing you say that you left for a while and that you were still tied into what was going on in education, that was me. Um, I also worked for Apple at that time as a sales consultant. And uh-huh. They, you know, so for those who don't know anything about Apple or working for Apple uh, in the actual Apple store, the best way to describe it is like uh, a a very differentiated classroom. It's organized chaos. So everyone that works in the Apple store, they're assigned to some type of team. So the team I was assigned to was the uh, instructional workshop team. Um, and I don't know if that's because of my background and that's what made them, you know, dis- help decide what team I should be on or if it was just my natural teaching tendencies. But I stayed glued on everything that happened in education those two years that I was out. And I basically was like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing here? What am I doing with this business? What am I doing working for this company? I know where my destiny lies. I know where my heart lies. And it was it was in education. It was in, uh, I don't want to say just the classroom, because I'm actually looking for ways to get out of the classroom right now. And, uh, <laughs> and, so, and so let's actually dig into that. So um, you went from, you know, being a journalism major, doing a journalism internship, and having a horrible experience or realizing that this is not for you, you got into education. When you first got into education, what did you actually teach? So I was in that after school program, uh, the, it was the Centennial Place Family YMCA, which is now Arthur Blank YMCA uh, in downtown Atlanta, literally across the street uh, from Coke headquarters. Right. So it's, it's across the street from there. And you know, it's, you can, you can spit, at, you could spit at the Georgia Dome, now the, you know, now the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I mean, it was right in the heart of everything. And the interesting kind of thing about that situation was the area where we were was formerly uh, the old Techwood projects in Atlanta. And the, they were very notorious, right? Very notorious housing projects. And so when the Olympics came in 96, uh, then all of that was torn down and they built up these beautiful apartments. Uh, that it, it, it then kind of became mixed housing. So you had folks that were from the Techwood projects and they were able to qualify, right, for the low income, et cetera, et cetera. And then you had college students because, you know, Coca-Cola is across the street to the to the south. And then if you go to the right, then you have Georgia Tech. Right. So you have like this headquarters of all of these, you know, these these corporations and these great universities and all of these things. And then you have Techwood projects. So, uh, so, so they tore all of that down and built up these apartments. And you had folks that were going to Georgia Tech. A couple of my friends that went to Morehouse, that went to Spelman, they were there, Clark Atlanta, and they lived in there. And so you had all of these different kind of combinations of folks that lived in those houses. Well, they built a school. And that school ended up being really the demographic to, to just to be simple, ended up being kids from Techwood Projects and, or, you know, maybe the next generation of kids that were from the Techwood Projects and then folks that were, or kids that were from, you know, they worked at Coca-Cola, their parents worked at Coca-Cola, their parents worked at Georgia Tech, you know, you, so you have this interesting mixture. So I was a part of the, the after-school program that was attached, the YMCA was actually attached to Centennial Place Elementary School. And so I was a part of that program and we would come in and they would go right from, I mean, the buildings were literally attached to where the students could walk through this hallway, walk up some steps and they were in the Y. And so uh, we had the different groups. You had kindergarten, you had first, you had second, and then fourth and fifth were a combination uh, just because of size. And I was an after-school counselor and was able to move into the lead counselor role. And really what we did was kind of supplemental education. What, I mean, you know, we did cooking, we did PE or, or activities like PE. Obviously, there was homework help, there was snacks. So you had all of these things that were going on that was kind of supplementary for, for those students uh, based in, in the YMCA. And so I was doing that and I was never really a big fan of working with little kids, uh, but I just I just loved it. And my, my favorite story is that you know, the first time, because again, I'm in Atlanta, right? And this is Atlanta during a very hot time. And so 
the Lil John song came out, and the first time I heard it was from a third grader who came to me and said, uh, Mr. John, Mr. John, to the windows, to the wall. I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't, you know, I hadn't heard the song. And then, of course, So, you know, just just stuff like that is is what happens. But it was it was a wonderful time being there. So how long were you there years wise? I was there for a little actually a little over a year. So it wasn't it wasn't terribly long. So it was a little over a year. And then after that, I went to um, uh, Ralph Bunch Middle School, uh, which is in southwest Atlanta um, and not too far from Greenbrier, Greenbrier Mall, just to give kind of a location. And uh, I went there, a friend of mine that had graduated from Spelman, she was a teacher there and then became the girls basketball coach. And so she, you know, asked me to come and, and be the assistant with her. And at that point it was, I mean, it was like a paid position. Uh, so I was able to, able to do that uh, for a season and, and we did well. And I, you know, kind of had other, you know, jobs that I was doing uh, during that time, obviously to make ends meet. And so that was that was, I think, the kind of for about two year span. Uh, and then after leaving that, that's when I got into the meat of it. And so then I, be, I became, um, I worked at Lakeshore Learning Center. And then I started working at Metro Regional Youth Detention Center. So now I'm in the juvenile justice system. And uh, I think that's where, I think that's where the fire started for me. I think that's where the fire started. And this is all in Atlanta. This is all in Atlanta. Yeah. Okay. And at the um, juvenile detention center, what were you doing there? So uh, I forgot exactly what the position was called, but I, I call it uh, basically an in-house sub. So you have, for those who don't know, um, stu- even when, even when students are put into the system, uh, when children are put into the system, juvenile justice system, uh, then they still have to go to school. And so there was an entire school, uh, like a wing of the school uh, that was inside of the jail. So um, you have obviously your teachers, right, in, in the various subjects, uh, and they're able to teach kind of a swath of, of age ranges there uh, because you have, you know, I've dealt with kids that were in fifth, sixth grade, unfortunately, um, all the way to, you know, your 16, 17 year olds, uh, that were, that were in the system. So I was essentially a live in sub where I would go in every day. And if a teacher was out, if a teacher needed assistance, I would be in there. I would do other kind of basically like a paraprofessional. That's maybe a better way to put it. Um, kind of like a parapro, uh, and going around to just different parts of the school, and just just helping out, making sure that all was well. Um, but I ended up doing a lot of just teaching because, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, folks kind of saw something in me uh, in regard to in regards to doing that. So teachers would allow me to come in and just teach whatever, and you know, help them help them teach whatever the subject uh, happened to be. Uh, so I, I got to do that for, and that I was I was there for close to a year. And then moved into um, moved into being the teacher on record at a middle school. And you taught English. Yes. And that was that still was, um, still in Atlanta. That was yeah, still in Atlanta. So I didn't leave Atlanta until after um, after being at the middle school for four years, uh, and I, you know, it, it's. Again, the road is is very indicative of what happens in education, I think at least. Very indicative of what happens in education and what happens in education in certain demographic in certain with certain demographics in, in certain areas. So I came in in I wanna say I think either end of October, early November, uh, into the middle school. 
And one of the teachers, they got some extra funding. So one of the, the teachers in kind of a seniority thing, uh, one of the English teachers was able to get kind of another position within the school, um, essentially working with the, the in-school uh, suspension students or maybe in-house detention students. Uh, and so she had another classroom, but it was much smaller. So they needed a new English teacher for the eighth grade. Uh, and so that was in Decatur, Georgia, uh, which is like uh, 10, 15 minutes east of, of downtown Atlanta. And uh, if you, you head down 20 or go on 285. And so I was able to to get in there uh, and I, I was fooled because I went in uh, the day before I was going to start. And so able to go see the classroom and meet a couple of the teachers and meet my team and and the whole thing, talk to the assistant principal. And so I walk into the classroom and it's still you know, that teacher that's about to leave, it's still her. Now she, you could walk in and you could tell she was a veteran teacher, had been teaching forever, was very good at her craft. And the entire room is silent. Students are working. It was absolutely beautiful. Well-appointed room. I mean, it was just, it was great. Right. And so I'm going in there. This is in Decatur, Georgia now. So I go in there and I'm like, oh, this is, this is going to be great. I'm going to have these nice kids and all this work. That that's not what happened, right? So I walked in <laughs> the next day, uh, and it was it was one of those you know fresh. And I'm young, you know, at the time I'm I'm young. I'm twenty. I want to say twenty four. I think about about twenty four when I first started. And they just they had a field day. They had a field day those first first couple months. They absolutely had a field day um, in in dealing with me and and me trying to figure out what my what my rhythm kind of was and, and trying to find your teacher voice and you got to find it quick. And so, you know, I, I really am very grateful for the experiences that I had had leading up to that because I wasn't going in as just some fresh off the boat teacher. You know, I, I'd been in education before and I had experienced students and had, you know, I'd gone through the thing and especially coming straight from uh, the juvenile detention center. So you know, I had those experiences, and, and so I was very grateful for those things that I could call on. Um, but there was a woman across the hall who was a brand new teacher, and it unfortunately didn't didn't really work out uh, for her. And so there's, you know, again, it's it's kind of indicative. All of those things are just kind of indicative of of what happens. Teachers coming in and not doing well, and then not getting supported, and all these different things. And so I was there uh, for about four years. Did a ton of stuff while I was there, coached and ran the discipline committee and all these other other uh, different sorts of things. And then I came back to California. <clears throat> and uh, OK, so uh, you had several years of experience under your belt at that point, been a classroom right. teacher, teacher of record at that point. So when you moved to Cali, is that when you exited from education initially? Yes. So <clears throat> when I came in, then I, I went into um, after school program management, like right, you know, probably a couple months after I got in and it's like, OK, I, you know, get out of the classroom. And I was in after school program management. And again, I was only at that place for a year. And it's just and it's 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 a huge nonprofit out here in California, uh, in Southern California. And it's a huge nonprofit. And I just. In hindsight, I think I struggled with their philosophy and their kind of one size fits all sort of thing that they were doing with students uh, and and just the way that that they were going about things. And again, yeah, I'm I'm idealistic still at that time. And since I do have those years under my belt, I know exactly what should be going on for for students. And and so I, I think I kind of struggled with those things. And uh, to be quite transparent, I didn't know how to manage, you know, other people. <laughs> I knew how to manage students. Right. But now I'm, you know, I'm dealing with adults and I'm under the impression that adults kind of, you're an adult, you know what you're supposed to do. You need <laughs> to handle that. You know, we're, we're here for kids. What are you doing? Uh, and so there was a lot of, and that's why the, it's after school program management and that management piece is so important because that's really what it was as opposed to actually working with, with children, actually working with students. Um, so I was only there for about a year and I just, that's when the, you know, along with other, you know, other kind of things cumulatively uh, that occurred, I just, I was just kind of done with education, just, just kind of done. Uh, and so I, that's when I went into the construction safety management and I was in that for about three years. And 
it was it was a good experience getting into the you know the for profit and seeing how things work uh, when you're talking about corporations and corporate management because it was a huge construction firm. I mean, literally an international construction uh, construction safety or not. I'm sorry, not construction safety, but a construction company it was heavy civil uh, that I was in. And I was involved in a couple of big projects down here in, in Southern California. And but again, that education just came calling. It just I just couldn't get away. I just couldn't get away from it. Um, and so and, and I know that we'll get to this later, but it's one of the things I think was a part of it was kind of the, you know, the bureaucracy of, of teacher preparation and the credentialing and, and all those things, because when I hit the ground in California, I couldn't teach because I didn't have a California credential or I'm sorry, I didn't have the qualifications for a California credential. And I'm sitting here like, well, wait a minute, I have a Georgia credential. I've taught for multiple years. I don't, I don't understand. And districts initially wouldn't hire me. That's why I went into the after school um, program management when I, when I got back to California because I couldn't get hired at a school. Yeah. Interesting to note, Georgia uses their own version of the praxis. So they have their own exam and California Mm. uses their own version of the exam. And just another state that I know for sure uses their own exam is, is Texas. And actually I think Illinois, if I'm not mistaken as well too. So sometimes, so for listeners, educators out there who are considering moving from this state to this state to this state, um, you've got to, you got to do your research in the beginning and try to figure out like exactly like what do I need to do in order to, you know, like you said, be credentialed in that particular state to be a a teacher of record. And uh, I do know with Callie, it's an interesting transition. I actually have a friend who just uh, this past school year, she taught with me last year and now she's, she just finally got a job, um, but she couldn't get a job right away. And there was, she had to retake tests if I'm not mistaken. She had to do a lot of stuff that she's done already um, in order to be credentialed. And I guess now she's finally credentialed because she is a a teacher of record. So um, I just wanted to make that point real quick, but that's interesting to note. No, it absolutely is. And, and you're, you're completely right when it comes to that, you know, one of the things is reciprocity and, you know, again, teachers out there, potential teachers out there, you're moving state to state. You got to find out what states have uh, what we call the reciprocity, right? Where mm-hmm. and California has no reciprocity whatsoever, right? Right? Like California just thinks that what they do to prepare teachers is this is everybody needs to do this, and we will not accept anybody's anything from anywhere. Um, you know, so I still had three classes that I had to take wow. in order to become. And again, I I was fully credentialed in Georgia. <laughs> wow. You know, I was waiting because so I'm like coming over here and it was it was just, you know, it's just a mess. So uh, so that was initially what kind of kept me out because I was just going to come back and all right, let me hop into the classroom and do the thing. And I couldn't I, I couldn't. And so uh, so that to me was it, it, again at the time, unfortunate and, and frustrating. But then in hindsight, it, it led me to some other things that certainly have helped me up till now uh, to, to be the educator that I am. So. I went back into, all right, let me go and let me go do this credentialing thing. Uh, and I ended up at a charter school uh, and kind of a winding road of, of the story of how I got into that. But I, I got into this charter school um, and I think there's a misnomer, many misnomers, but there's a misnomer about charter schools in that they're not, they don't have the same oversight and they don't have to do all of the things. And, you know, it's, it's much easier at a charter school uh, for teachers, none of that could be further from the truth. <laughs> where, where have you heard that before? Have you actually heard that? <laughs> none of that. Yes, you have. You have. It's this belief that uh, if you're at a charter school, right? As a, uh, let me go back. As an institution or as an organization, charter schools don't have any accountability. Like that's that's, that's a, crazy. That's a legitimate thing that people, you know, that that people believe charter schools have no accountability and they don't have to do the same things as a public school. And that's why they have the advantages and they don't have to let certain students in. And that's why their test scores are better, because, you know, they don't have to let sped students in. And it's like, no, that's not that's not true. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a thing. Right. And so you you have that situation. And as a matter of fact, um, I can and I'll speak just certainly from my from my experience at my charter school. We have more oversight 
mm-hmm. than uh, than what your 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 average public school uh, traditional public school has. Uh, we are an independent charter school, and so to that end, you know we're not we're not with the protection of a district, right? And when I say protection, I mean monetary. Um, so, you know, we don't have that going on and we have to accept everybody that comes in and we don't, at least a traditional public school, they can say, oh no, you don't live in our boundaries. You know, you, you can't come here. We got to accept anybody, Right. you know, they, they can live wherever and they can come in. So, you know, all, all of that said, um, I, I got into the charter school and I will say then the, the advantage is because it is smaller. Um, I think I had more of an opportunity than, uh, to move up. And so I taught there. I was a part of the founding uh, middle school uh, teachers there. And I was teaching for two years and then moved into administration. And here I am an assistant principal. Perfect. So let's dig, let's dig into it. That was beautiful. Thank oh. you for laying that out for us. So, cause <laughs> I, you know, I had to do that cause I, I wanted you to lay it out. Cause I know we did the abridged version at first. I'm like, hold on, there's, there's some holes there. And I, I want you to take the <laughs> listeners through that journey to figure out how did you end up in administration? And I'm glad that you are in administration and I'm glad that you came back to education. So thank you for that. Um, Absolutely. I appreciate it. Because we're still right, very, very underrepresented uh, in leadership positions in the classroom, just in education as a whole. Um, and, and when I say that, I mean as males, we're underrepresented, and I mean as black males specifically, we're underrepresented. So, thank you Absolutely. for coming back. Um, so you were at the charter school for two years. Of course, you have all this experience under your belt. When did the light turn on for you? When did you feel a calling to administration to leadership i think i think as early as i think as early as maybe a couple years into even me teaching even Mm -hmm. in georgia but see the the motivations were different so in georgia i'm young and you know i'm looking at the landscape and i'm like oh well this is this is the natural course of things this is what you're supposed to do you're supposed to teach and then you're supposed to get some years and then you become an assistant principal and then you become a principal and maybe even go to the district office or whatever, right. just as career. And right. that was the primary motivation initially. Uh, what ended up happening is that, you know, you, you go for some years, you go for some years. And obviously my, you know, my experience in moving through different forms of or different parts of the education system, I think I would say after that first year in California, um, not uh, I'm sorry, not when I moved back, but I mean my first year at the charter school, then I said, I, in order for me to be able to have the effect that I think I should have, I, I need to get into the decision-making process. I can control my classroom. I, I can run that. But at that point, then I'm affecting, you know, wh- whatever it is, 120 students, whatever, whatever you have on your, on your role. Right. But I... I think I need to get into a point where I'm, I'm able to positively affect more students. And it's just, as you said, it was the underrepresentation. See, when I was in Georgia, where I was, you know, I'm still in Decatur and everybody's black. So I didn't, you know, there was no, you know, all the the teachers were black. I had a couple of other folks, but the teachers were black. My principal was black. My assistant principals were black. The counselors were black. Everybody was black. And, you know, obviously it's, it happened to be where I was, but there wasn't even, it, it almost got to the point where it wasn't even a thought anymore. You know, it wasn't even a thought anymore. And then when I came back and when I was in the different schools, because when, you know, in the after school program, I was in uh, Santa Ana and Santa Ana is heavily uh, Hispanic Latino. Right. And so you, you have that kind of dynamic and I'm looking around and I'm like, well, wait a minute, even though, the overwhelming majority of the students and obviously their families, Hispanic, Latino, all the administrators are not. Mm-hmm. And then when you did have Hispanic, Latino administrators, it was you could just see the difference, kind of a familial difference. And so uh, for me, uh, in getting into in getting into administration or at least the motivation, it was to affect things positively. And I was like, I, I, knew, I knew that the only way for me to do that and to be able to make kind of those grand scale decisions I had to sacrifice what I felt I was good at, which is, you know, just being in the classroom and making the magic happen. Um, and and I, I had to get into leadership and actually lead. And 
and say, no, these are the decisions that we need to make and, and then move forward with those. And that, that in and of itself has certainly been a, it's been a challenge. It's been wonderful. It's been horrible. It's been all of those things. Uh, but it's, but as you said, it's necessary. It was the week before Christmas break and all through the school, teachers waited on the break to come, trying not to act the fool. The objectives were hung on the wall with care in hopes that the naughty observers would see them up there. The students were antsy, taking a quiz at their desk. And even though I gave them the answer, they all made 50s on the test. When out in the hall there arose such a clatter, I got up from my desk to go gather some data. Away to the door, I flew like a flash. Who could this be disturbing my class? When what to my wondering eyes would appear, the boy I sent to the office was sent right back in here. He danced with happiness like he couldn't be tamed. And fed up, I called out my issues by name. I'm tired. I'm weary. My paycheck don't glisten. Been yelling about my needs, but admin won't listen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Come on, winter break, because I'm about sick of the fall. And the second the bell rings for the fall to expire, I'll be dashing to my car like a cheetah on fire. Go to your next class. Mr. Brown! What? Go to class, boy. It's coffee. You know I drink coffee. Go to class. So let's go into the preparation. I know that you've held multiple um, management positions and uh, been in different leadership roles, even all the way to you coaching. Um, how was your program um, going through administration? What different things, like what were aha moments that maybe a you know typical teacher of record wouldn't understand or realize that you realize like oh so this is really a thing in administration right i think the the biggest impact so i went to uh, the university of laverne uh, for my for my program uh, and that's where i got the, the med in uh, educational leadership and they have very similar to you know teacher credentialing programs you have the master's credential uh, and so that's that's what Laverne had uh, with the with with administrative credentialing so you have the you know the master's credential program and I think the biggest aha moment was the educational law class mm-hmm. and I just I, I I sat in that class every day and I actually took that class during the summer and I sat in that class every day and I was just awed at why this is not required for going through teacher credentialing. Because there are so many things in educational law that you need to be aware of. And it's not necessarily to intimidate, uh, to intimidate educators, but it's more for that understanding and that knowledge. You know, depending on what on what state you're in and what credentialing program you're in, you know, you're going to have certain common classes. You're going to take a maybe a special education class. Right. You're taking one class, though. You know, what I mean, unless you are getting your SPED credential, then you're taking a class and it's a general overview. You know, you there's definitely no <laughs> classes or or anything about classroom management. And that's a thing we'll talk about in a minute. But, you know, you have uh, you certainly have like a, a child psychology class. Right. But you're you're taking these classes kind of in in isolation. Right. But that ed law class, I you know, you know, you go through a cohort. Right. And so my friends and I in that cohort, I mean, that is what we would discuss. Like I just the educational law class. And so I think that was the aha moment. It was the educational law class and knowing all of these things that I knew the teachers didn't know and not because, you know, they're ignorant or anything, but just because that's just not a part of the program. Right. And you don't realize the depth of of all of the nuances and in, in certain certainly in dealing with students, with parents, with the law in general, managing folks, because obviously you're in a management position. So you have kind of some HR stuff that comes into play. So there's all of these different things. And, you know, we don't even need to you know, talk about the union. You have all of these different things that come into play. And I we're not going to talk about this unless you're in an administrative credentialing program. It's you know, that that was the deal for me. It was that ed law class. Right. OK. All right. Good stuff. So, um. How long have you been in this current role as assistant principal? Uh, this is my fourth year. Fourth year doing it. Wow, amazing. So, I you kind of you kind of alluded to it, but you enjoying it? Is it was it worth the leap? Uh, it's it, yes. the The short answer is yes. I think that you know people stu- teachers will ask me, and some sarcastically, some not sarcastically, uh, but they're like, "Oh, you know, hey, how's it going?" I'm like, "I'm living the dream." And, you know, you have to know, <laughs> I'm living a dream, baby, every day. You, you, you have to know going into it 
that, or, or at least learn very quickly when you're in, into it, that this is, you're no longer a teacher. And, you know, you have to, it is a different role and you have to, for, for lack of a better term, you have to be okay with that. You have to understand that you have to be okay with that. You have to know that you're not a teacher anymore and you can't kind of put your, you can't have your teacher hat on. Now you still have to have the, the revelations of a teacher and the understanding of a teacher. And, and certainly in working with your teachers, don't forget that time that you had in the classroom and some of your frustrations and how do you work through those. But as an administrator, you have to understand that you are simply not a teacher anymore and you can't work with folks as you would if you were a teacher. One of the challenges that I had initially was I had the privilege of moving up at the same school. And so folks that were my colleagues and, you know, we're sitting in the in the teacher's lounge together. Now I'm not going in the teacher's lounge. Right. <laughs> and like uh, that's, you know, that's their space. That's their space. And, and absolutely knew that at the beginning to to kind of let them have that. But we're not having those same conversations. I can't have those conversations with you. And, and you just you just have to be professional enough to, to know that and to actually execute it, actually exercise those things. You just you're an administrator. You are a manager. You have to talk to parents in a different way. Right. You, know, you have to talk to students in a different way. You have to you have to have that bird's eye view. You have to you know, you you can't get caught up with the proverbial trees as opposed to the forest. Right. You, you can't you have to be an actual manager and an actual leader. And I think similar to teacher credentialing, uh, you know, programs and the holes that are in those programs, one of the holes that I saw or I feel in an administrative uh, credentialing or, or even master's program is when we talk, we're just talking about education and yeah, we're talking about ed law and we're talking about these different things as they pertain to education. But when do we talk about leadership? When do we truly talk about what it means to lead out? Yes, management, but lead. How do you become a true leader and what are the traits of becoming or being a leader? And that's where, you know, you, uh, that's where you then put on your teacher hat and you have to be that that lifelong learner. uh, Right. Because I have to, I have to, I've read books and looked at Ted talks and all the things, and I'm sure plenty of other educators do that. But you have to you you have to do that on your own because it doesn't happen in those programs. And so I think that's a big hole um, that that they that you have in in that program where you're going into management. It's educational leadership. It's educational management. And you have to be able to manage and lead. Uh, You have to get folks to, you know, to follow you uh, and you have to get folks to trust you. And you just uh, you know, most folks don't come in with that sensibility. I'm so glad that you uh, spoke about leadership uh, in your current role, um, and, and I'm going to recommend this to you. I don't know if you read it already or anyone else, but there's a book, um, and I'm a proud MBA dropout. I say that proudly. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was the other thing I was doing during that two years is I was you know, trying to see like, hey, well, maybe I should get my business degree, and nah, I dropped out uh, after a year, and I'm glad I did. Uh, you just have to know when things aren't for you, right? You just got to know. I mean, I could have forced my way through it, but ideally, realistically, uh, nah, it wasn't a good match. But one thing I do take from business school, and I went to Union University, which is a private Christian school, is the okay. first book they had us read um, wasn't a textbook. It was actually a, a short uh, novelish book, um, nonfiction, actually more spiritual, if anything. It's called The Way of the Shepherd, Seven Ancient Secrets to Managing Productive People. I don't know if you've seen that book before. I don't know if you've read that book before, but it talks about leadership in its truest essence. It talks about leadership really being about serving and servitude and rolling up your sleeves and being able to get in the mud and serving the people. And when I think of a principal, when I think of a system principal, any type of educational leader, it's, you know, again, the objective is always the kids. The, the objective is always the kids. And it's how can you support those who are trying to support the kids? Like, how can you you know, serve teachers who are trying to serve the kids and the parents and the community and all of the stakeholders. So if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Um, 
And, and that book really is like a life-changing book. I actually need to read it again. Yeah, and I just um, I'm looking it up right now, and that is that is that's is that's about to go on my Kindle. It's about to be on my reading list. So I appreciate <laughs> please you. Please check it out. Uh, please check for it out. Giving me that. You'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. Um, so let's talk bigger, grand scheme of things. So in the next mm-hmm. five, ten years, what are your career goals? If you don't mind sharing. Um, sure. Is it going to be a head principal? Are you trying to make it to the board of education? Maybe work for the state? What What do you have in mind? So I think that uh, again, and you know, and this is experience, perspective, etc. One of the things that I've learned about myself uh, through this, you know, kind of journey, if you will, is I I want to be on the ground. I want to be at school sites. Um, I don't necessarily see myself at a at a district, uh, you know, at a district in regard into the district office. Um, I wouldn't be against it if it came, but I, I think that for me, it's being it's being at the school site, being on the ground, and being able to see and work with the teachers, being able to see and work with the staff, see and work with, of course, the students. So you know, there's a number of things. Uh, certainly, want to to lead my own school. Uh, at at some point in the in the relatively near future, but then also get into uh, kind of you know consulting, if you will, but not the just travel around and just do you know and, and get my airline miles and the whole deal, but more of going to school sites, going to districts, going to different places, and being able to kind of learn about what they're doing and then help them fill in those gaps, help them fill the holes. One of the things that I got to do is early on in the after school program management was that in that particular program then they had folks that were either in college or fresh out of college and they were the ones that were working directly with the students so they don't know you know what they're doing i mean they're not necessarily trying to not all of them uh they're not necessarily trying to get into education this is kind of just like a job right that i can i can do to to get some money so i can you know maybe pay some bills and what have you while i'm in school so I was standing side by side with those folks and training them on how to work with the students, classroom management, for instance, right? And, and what, I, what I felt in those moments was, oh, I mean, most people want to do, they, you know, if they're in a classroom, they want to do well, whether you are a teacher on record, whether you're a parapro, whatever you happen to be, you're working with students, they want to do well for the students. So to that end, you just need a little help and you need some guidance. And so I really enjoyed being able to do that. And so for me, I'd like to get into going to these different places, right, and helping teachers, helping schools really dig into how do I most effectively deal with my population, with the students that are in my classroom? Because we always do this general swath when we talk about demographics. When you talk about demographics, what comes to mind? Well, normally, are the kids poor, rich, and are they black, white, purple, green? What are they, right? And that's what comes to mind when we talk about demographics, but it's, it's so much more than that. And in this whole idea of educating the whole child and really uh, supporting the whole child, uh, then there are certainly nuanced demographics that we have to look at. So therefore, I want to get into going into districts, going into classrooms and really working with that. And of course, like any educator, I'm gonna write a book. Everybody wants to write. I'm gonna write a book. Yeah. Um. And and get into that. So that's those are really the you know kind of the near future things. Writing the book. Uh. And and again, that would be about that's it's about management. I think the most important thing in a classroom, and it's not like I'm saying anything revolutionary, but it, it, the most important thing in, in a classroom is classroom management. Like you have to, you have to know, and you have to be able to run that class from the yeah. time those students hit that threshold of your door yep. to the time they walk out. And it's it's kind of a a lost or or not considered art because you know the teachers, at least I know the teachers that I've worked with in the past, classroom management is discipline. And it's like that's that's a small part of it. Uh, and so I, I really I really think that that's important. And so that's that's kind of the area that I like to focus in when it comes to the consulting, when it comes to the even the book uh, and and certainly with you know, in moving up kind of the ladder, if you will, and then working with working with my teachers at a school site. 
That's perfect, man. Great answer. Great answer. And I know you'll uh, achieve those things. It's interesting about classroom management. And, you know, I don't know what type of book you're thinking about writing, but that might be the niche that you might want to go into. Um, I've really found that it's about preparation. Uh, and it's preparation. It's, it's different levels. Right? It's levels to this. It's different levels of preparation. Um, so there's a there's a pre- and any teacher will say, you know, this from being an educator, it takes longer to prep your lesson than it does to actually teach the lesson. Right. Um, right. And so I spend so much time preparing my lesson, but there's a different level of preparation. So you got to prepare your lesson. So your lesson plans, especially if you're out of school, you have to turn in lesson plans. Then if you know, if you use some type of technology, you've got to have those documents or, or presentation or PowerPoint or Prezi. You have to have that ready. Then you have to have your physical materials ready if you're going to use them. So if there's a text the kids are going to be reading or something that they have to manipulate, you have to have that ready. How many educators do you know actually take time and 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 no one feel bad about this because I don't do this consistently, but I just I think about it sometimes is how many uh, educators actually take the opportunity to go through a lesson like to actually teach a lesson, you know. Everyone in college, you have to take, what is it, public speaking one-on-one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We practice yeah. our speeches, right? Over and right. over and over. And, if, you know, you got mom or dad or your siblings around. Hey, listen to this speech. Who does that with their significant other, with their friends? Hey, man, listen to this lesson on theme. Nobody does mm. that. But Nobody. imagine if you did. <laughs> imagine if you did. And then right. the person that's listening to you is like, you know what? That was kind of confusing. You're like, oh, so if you're confused by it, I know for sure my kids are going to be confused by it. But I just think that, you know, there's so many different layers to preparation. And the more prep time and the more, uh, and you can be efficient with that. So maybe it's not more time, but the more skilled you are at preparing for a class, the better the classroom management is. And I, you are 100% correct. I mean, and I think that that's, it's the understanding that that's what it takes. I had the, uh, I had the privilege and I really do call it a privilege because this is the first time that I've done it as an administrator. I was um, able to step back into the classroom and teach two days of a class. Uh, and, and it was, uh, it was an AP English class and I taught the foreword to, uh, to Tony Morrison's beloved, right? Now, here's the thing. What I think people don't, uh, this is what the teacher didn't understand, you know, because I said, you know, this, I prepped this lesson for, for a strong couple of weeks here. And we're talking about the foreword, which is three or four pages. Yeah. And that is what the lesson was. Now, of course, that was the basis of it. And, you know, we're talking about theme, theme of freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and as a preview and foreshadowing and such as a, as a preview into the novel and, and some of the themes that you're going to find in there. but you know, I created all of my materials. You know, I didn't look on the, I mean, obviously I looked for, you know, on the internet and, you know, let me, oh, let me remember some like what's going on in the novel, da, da, da. But I created the materials. And so I had to get the teacher to understand, number one, I created the materials. Yes, it took me a couple of weeks to really flesh this lesson out and how, how, it, how it would most be effectively done or delivered but that's what you need to understand you have to do. And what you're doing is you're doing kind of generic PowerPoints Mm -hmm. and you're doing stuff that you found on the internet and there's nothing wrong with, cause you know, the the old adage of the best teachers, you know, are great thieves, right? They steal, you know, their lessons and such, but it's knowing how to execute it. It's knowing how to tangibly apply these things. And so that preparation is what's so, so incredibly important. And, and as a big part of classroom management, the kids aren't, the kids aren't dumb. They know organically if you're, if you're ready or not, or if you're knowledgeable about this thing or not, and they'll eat you alive. If they, if they see <laughs> each other, you like, if you don't care, then I don't care. Like, uh, you know, so it, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. It's the, the preparation is incredibly important, but the depth of the preparation, I, I think, I think most, the, the overwhelming majority of new teachers uh, don't understand that. But that's why, again, to me, that that training is so important, that standing side by side is so important. Those conversations are so important. And those are the things that I think are missing 
in a lot of uh, in a lot of parts of of education where you know people come in and they're new and they they want to save the world and it's like listen <laughs> this is how this this is how this this is how this works right um and this is this is how you kind of need to go about your business if you come in and you're working on that preparation if you come in and you're working on your crap yeah it's not about your prep time you're worried about your prep time it's not about your prep time are you going home and and uh, do you have a visceral love for this right in making sure that you deliver this lesson so it's it's the the preparation is incredibly important and we can and we can get into even so we want the and we try to teach kids this right have intrinsic motivation right be intrinsically motivated right. by what you're doing what you're pursuing you know that that's that's the goal that's the apex of education is to get kids to that point where they're independent thinkers, independent learners, they're reading on their own, they're invigorated by just the thought of just cognitive processing, like, I love to learn, right? That's an right. utopia. That, does, that doesn't really exist. It, it exists for some in small pockets, but it doesn't exist. Mm. And, and hopefully we can change that. And we want that for our educators, right? We want them right. to be intrinsically motivated. But let's keep it real. Let's keep it real. It would help if there was some type of extrinsic motivation as well, too. And I think, and, and, and you know, I, I've lived in Wisconsin. I've lived in Minnesota. Uh, I'm currently in Tennessee. I've only taught in Tennessee. Everything I know about education uh, before this podcast was pretty much focused on Tennessee and Wisconsin, right? Mm. Um, but I've, you know, being able to do this podcast and being able to uh, collaborate with so many different educators, it's really got my research mind going to the point where I'll talk to a teacher in New Orleans and, you know, she'll mention this program and that program and these problems. And then I'll start doing my research on issues that are happening in New Orleans. I have no intentions on ever moving or teaching in New Orleans, but she's got me interested. You know, that guess has got me interested. So I start doing research. And so as I'm looking from state to state to state, state to state and of course in different states it's it's definitely different the pay scale and i'm looking at these career ladders or these teaching ladders or even admin you know the ladders the steps you go or if you get this degree and you get this degree and you teach for 10 years 15 years 20 years 30 years one thing one one thing i've been taught to do is to look at data and figure out trends one trend i found out one trend i found out they don't pay us very well. And when I say that, people, whoa, whoa, whoa. We, you know. For some people, of course, it's worse if you teach in Wyoming or North Dakota. or It's like, whoa, how do you make it you know, on $27,000 a year, right? Versus right. you go to New York or certain charter schools or certain schools where the, the what do they call them, the state turnaround districts, um, where the state basically has to take over. And so to provide incentive, they increase the actual salary um, ladder or scale, whatnot. Um, we're still being undervalued. Like if we just keep it real, the teachers who are really putting, the educators who are really putting in the hours, putting in the time, putting everything into it, and they're intrinsically right. motivated. I feel like we can genuinely improve education and improve the motivation for teachers because, yes, it is about the kids. It's always about the kids. But I do feel like, especially when you reach like, you know, yo, this is my sixth year, this is my seventh year, this is my eighth year or more where that motivation starts to it starts to wither away. And I think if right. we, if there was a way possible, we can change the pay scale and get more involvement. Of course, that it goes to a bigger discussion on why do we spend so much money on military and we're not even in the act of war and we keep lowering the educational fed, uh, federal budget. And, you know, so that gets into a whole conversation that me and you'll be doing two, three podcasts talking about. So <laughs> exactly. we, we won't get into that. But what's one of the issues that you see on why um, teachers aren't intrinsically motivated? And is there anything that we can do about it? I think, you know, intrinsically, so, so here's what happens. Let me go backwards a little bit. I, I did a, um, I did a presentation, uh, during my, uh, during my admin program where we were looking at just that. And that is what are the motive, what are the motivating factors for folks in, in education and even outside of education, right? What are they motivated by? And, uh, if you look at the, 
kind of the top, let's go like top 10, if you will. Money and, and most, the overwhelming majority of the, the databases, the research and such that you will find, money is normally eh, about midway down the list. Money's not even in the top three. Okay. The challenge that I believe we have is environmental. Mm-hmm. The challenge that we have is, is, is culturally uh, within, and I'm talking about just within a school. So uh, Simon Sinek, uh, who's, you know, he's like a, like a motivational speaker and has written books and whatever. Uh, he has this very famous TED talk where he's talking about uh, leaders or good leaders make folks feel safe. And he gives this example of where he's about to get on a plane and he's, he's going to get on this plane, uh, fly wherever he was flying. And obviously, you know how you have the rows of boarding and you say, OK, the A group, the B group, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he kind of details the story where someone tried to get on the plane sooner than their, you know, their row was called or their number was called. And when the person got up to the gate and they were trying to get on, then he says that, you know, the, the gate attendant was extremely rude and, and basically yelled at the guy. And so he said, and, you know, this again, this is his story. He comes up to the guy, and he's, uh, the, the woman, and he says, hey, you know, why are you treating us this way? Why are you treating us like cattle? And she says, you know, sir, if I don't do this correctly, then I may lose my job. Right. And his takeaway from that was that she did not feel safe. She did not trust her leadership. And so I use that example to say that I think the cha- one of the challenges that we have, because if you look at the motivating factors for folks extrinsically, it's top two, top three. It's the environment. Do I feel valued? Right. Do mm-hmm. I feel safe? And I think in a lot of educational venues or organizations, folks just don't feel safe. And especially teachers. That's why you have all these union fights and all these things. Folks don't feel safe because the only extrinsic motivation that you get is pay. You don't give the resources that teachers need. You don't give all of the different things that come into play that, you know, you don't give counselors. And I mean, obviously this goes to resources, but you don't give, you know, all of the counseling that needs to happen, that support. You don't give enough folks that come in and out of the classrooms, you know, uh, paraprofessionals, if you will. You don't have enough support at the overwhelming majority of, of, of sites. You don't have enough professional development or let's go with this targeted, tangible professional development. You don't have enough of that. You don't have enough opportunities for teachers to feel as if, oh, okay, I, I can move up or my ideas are valued, et cetera, et cetera. So because we're in this system with the only extrinsic motivation being, hey, where's my money? Then, then that's why you have that big five-year teacher turnaround. Right. You know, that's that's the big statistic. You know, you and I both know teachers get you, you get to that fourth or fifth year. Most yep. people step out. Yep. Right. And the reason that that's happening or re- what part of the reason, at least, that that's happening is because what else is there? You're not paying me well. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I kind of, you know, I'd messaged this to you previously where <laughs> teachers, I mean, forget admin teachers on average, in, in order for you to actually get paid, right, you have to get a master's degree yep. and even education beyond a master's degree. Yep. You have as much formal education, if not more, than a doctor or a lawyer. Yep. Yet I don't have – I don't go into a dentist's office and go, hey, doc, listen, I don't <laughs> care what your diagnosis is. This is what I think is happening. Right? Right. Yet I have parents that are able to come in. I have folks that have never taught a day in their lives, but they're making educational policy. Yep. These are the things, right, that are destroying the morale. These are the things that are making me as an, a teacher go, yeah, I don't, uh, this is not for me. I'm not going to do this. I would rather go into something that's not going to fulfill me as a job. I would rather go into something that's not going to fulfill me and at least get paid a lot better. Mm-hmm. Then be in here with this thing that I love to do and really working with these students and trying to make the future better. I would rather do this other thing than be in the classroom because of all of these other factors. 
And yes. I think that that is, yeah. that's the challenge that we have. And this is why people in the pay, I mean, good Lord have mercy. Yes, you're right. 27,000. Are you kidding me? That's crazy. Anywhere <laughs> in the country, anywhere. I don't care if you're in the backwoods of some Southern state, like, it doesn't matter. 27,000 for a person who has a four-year bachelor's degree, in most cases, two years of a master's, you know, you're talking about, oh, 27, 30, 35, 40. That, that's, that's absurd. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of normally the cherry on the Sunday. And, and that is all of these things, all the support, all this stuff you're not giving me, you're expecting me to do all of this. You're expecting me to, to carry and, and put on all of these different hats. And then on top of all of this support, you're not going to give me, you're not going to pay me. Can't do it. And that's why I think we have, uh, we've got people who are, excuse me, excuse my French, half assing uh, in their in their jobs, right? Like that. Oh, I really absolutely. That I really feel that way. Um, have you considered getting a doctorate degree? I've considered it. I absolutely have, and it's it's still it's still under consideration. It's it's at the point where I feel like because after I finished my master's program, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I don't want to do you know schooling anymore. I'll be fine with my math. And now I'm just at. Uh, I kind of, uh, kind of may need to go back and get the doctorate. I, I kind of may need to do this. Well, we're um, so I, we're in the same boat, and I, I will say this: don't rush yourself. Don't rush it. Um, hmm. But I, I do think that you definitely should get your uh, doctorate degree, and I think you probably already have uh, a great foundation for your dissertation um, already. Um, you know, in the research and the work that you've done with, you know, what is. Uh, what, what's that? What do they call that? Uh, not retention, but I guess it's like uh, morale or, you know, what, what you were saying about the environment and the reasons why teachers right. aren't intrinsically motivated. I really think you can dig deeper into that um, for your dissertation when you decide to, you know, pursue your doctorate degree. I, I appreciate that. And I listen, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. <laughs> I think it's I think it's there. And I, it's just because as you look it up, there's not a whole heck of a lot of research. And and the research that's done, right, is not really done by educators. No. And so that I think is is another part of the challenge. So I, you know, I appreciate that. And eh, now you're now you're pushing me a little bit, you're pushing me more than my wife. <laughs> take, your time, take your time, though. Take your time, though. Take your time. Take your time. I'm I'm still trying to get someone to pay for my doctorate degree. I got a I did a year in, then I stopped when my when I knew my son was uh being born or he was coming soon. And uh mm. You know, and now I'm looking at different programs. I'm like, I need somebody to pay for this. Like, I, I'm I'm black and brown in the mail. I'm under I'm underrepresented in so many different ways. Somebody's about to fully fund this doctorate degree. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm still looking. Yes. I'm still looking. As soon as I find out, trust me, I'll do a whole podcast episode. Hey, they got free programs. All you got to do is get listen. I'm a, yeah. And I'm I mean, I'm gonna be listening too. And oh, oh, oh all right. I know where to go now. I know where to go. Oh yeah, I'll definitely message you on that one. Like, hey, I found one. I found one. Um, actually, I think um, I could be wrong. I still got to do more research. But I do think that, uh, and I'm biased because I'm in Tennessee, but I think Vanderbilt's Peabody uh, College of Education, I do believe their doctorate programs are fully funded. Doctor of Education programs are fully funded. Um, I still got to do some more research on that because I don't know if that's 100% true, but. So for, for I mean, those, look, those you, willing to move to Nashville, you know, listen to some country music, <laughs> eat some barbecue. But uh, yeah, well, yeah I, don't, I don't think anybody's going to go against that. Good stuff. So this this was great, man. This was a great show. Um, last words that you'd like to leave black and brown educators listening or just educators in general. Last words of wisdom you'd like to leave them. Oh, sure. I appreciate that. Listen, you know, there is there is absolutely a heavier responsibility that black and brown educators have. We're not going to lie about that. We're not going to sugarcoat it. There is a heavier responsibility. And so you have to understand that going in and you have to be willing to understand as well where that responsibility, not as a weight, but more as a badge of honor. And, uh, you know, at Morehouse, we always talk about, um, you know, the crown. Howard Thurman talks about the crown, right, that we have to rise up to, to put on our head. And so for all of us as black and brown educators, we have to rise up to that challenge. Know that the challenge is there. Seek support, right, from, from educational communities. And there are plenty of them out there. This podcast is absolutely one of them. And seek that support. We have to be collaborative. We have to work together. 
but rise up to that challenge and know that it's a challenge that we can do because literally, literally, the future does in fact depend on it. So we can do that, right? Then we'll be setting up a great future for not just the kids that look like us, but everybody. And that's what we kind of have to be thinking about as we as we go into education and as we move through uh, our collective careers. Well said, brother. This has been a pleasure. I'm so glad that we can make it work finally. Um, finally. <laughs> yeah, finally. Uh, and, I mean, it's tough, man. I mean, because I, I know like, you know, I'm super busy. So I know right. anybody that, you know, I'm, I'm collaborating with, I know that they're super busy. They're more than likely in a different state or in this case, a different time zone. So it's different like, times. How can we, how can we, you know, we got family going on. We got, you know, a billion different hats that we wear, you know, in the school building. We got a billion other hats we wear outside of the school building. So I, I know, I know everybody's just busy. I'm just trying to like, let me link up, let me link up. We're going to make it happen because I know once we do, it'll be magic. So um, this was a great show, man. And I am a hundred percent confident that uh, listeners will be replaying this one and listening to it over and over again, probably saving it to their phone. What can I say? Mamba out. Thank you for listening to the Black Scholars Podcast. For more information, Sometimes go to blackscholarspublishing.com. You just gotta go. You will never know what you could ever be. If you never try, you will never see. Stayed in Africa, we ain't never leave. So one no slaves in our history. One no slave ships, one no misery.